Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome, everybody, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. I am Michael Flores, your host and captain of this vessel. And with me at the helm is Ensign David. Hello, Dave. Hello, Captain. Are we going to actually get some EMHs for the studio? You're actually a hologram right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> You're a hologram because I killed the real you. I killed the real me. But now I just say computer hologram. Hologram instant, please. That's it. Or are you going to come up with the, the special commands that hologram shut up? Oh, I, I do that. Watch. I'll show you. Hologram. Shut up. <laughs> See, it works. All right. So today we're going to be breaking down and discussing Star Trek book hard episode four of the first season. Absolute candor. All right. So, Dave, it seems like we are back on track. This episode was very strong. There was a definitive direction, no meandering, a very concise plot. The episode was, in fact, written by Michael Shaban, but the difference might be that Jonathan Franks is the one who directed the episode. Dude, you know, we we talk about Dave Filoni in regards to Star Wars. Oh, come on. Let's not get into that territory, please. No, no, no. one knows who Dave Filoni is. Yes. But Jonathan Franks is that to Star Trek, I think. No, I really he, do believe he's it. definitely one of those directors that every Star Trek fan can get behind. Can and, get behind. Yeah, and he's been literally the director of almost every single... No, he has directed numerous episodes for every single Star Trek series. And he's a veteran and he knows what to do. I mean, all we have to do is watch the nice space shootout at the end of this episode to know he directed it. I mean, it had the Frank style, the Frank style all over it. Oh yeah. So not only does Frank's do great with the more personal moments, but he's excellent with capturing action sequences. I mean, just look at one of the greatest Star Trek films of all time. First contact. Oh so, my God. Yeah. yeah. Opening scene. Yeah. Fantastic. He's great. And I'm going to say this right out the gate. Cristobal Chris Rios might be, without a doubt, no, not might be, without a doubt, my new favorite Star Trek character of the new era. Him and his holograms, Dave, are the, stealing yeah. the show. Every the holograms. Every, the time holograms. They're on, every time they're on screen. Every, it's not just the holograms. I mean, it's the Rios as a whole is just fantastic. And we're going to spend a lot of time on him today because I feel like there's something very important about his character that we had scraped the tip of the iceberg during episode three, but I feel like it was fully realized the concept in this episode. 
and has everything to do with the book he's reading, has everything to do with his morose mentality and the holograms. Yes. Uh, he's an amazing character, not just because uh, Cabrera, Santiago Cabrera is a great actor, but Shaban is putting some intelligence into this character. So we're going to get into that later in the show towards the end. And we'll get into this character a lot more towards the end of this of the discussion because he is very interesting. He's got this whole introspective vibe and self hatred going on, which is something we haven't quite seen before in a star Trek character. Uh, seven of nine makes her first appearance. God, and she still looks hot. Oh, it's quite an injury. I'm like, Picard, you owe me a ship. I'm like, I will owe you anything. <laughs> I'm going to give you anything. I will give you whatever you want. <laughs> I'm in your debt. <laughs> Uh, we also got to see an old school Romulan bird of prey in action. That was cool. That was awesome. And Michael Shaban and the team continued to take us deeper into the Romulan culture in ways we've never seen. And I've always said, I've always said the Romulans had been a missed opportunity. We've never really used them, but here we are now. Yeah. Using them the way I've been wanting for decades, finally. And a part of me is a little glad we haven't because they have, for the most part, been relatively a mystery. Sure, we know a few things here and there, but when you really look at them, you compare them to the many other aliens that we've delved into, we know a fraction when you compare them to the various, you know, dozens of other alien species that we have crossed has with Encountered. throughout the last what 40 i'm sorry 50 plus years in star trek oh yeah i mean like i honestly think picard is going to do to romulans what tng was able to do with klingons because and the original series too right well in, in the movies in the movies yeah, yeah but in tng they fleshed out a ton of like lore behind the klingon race delving into their religion yeah and like that's true. When I see this particular episode, it's very similar to to me how it feels when in the old TNG episodes when they dealt with Worf's background and dealing with his uh, spiritual beliefs. That's a good point because, yes, in the movies, we kind of scraped the tip of the iceberg, right? Yes. And even in the original series, just the tip just of the, the iceberg. Tip of the iceberg. But TNG really – you're right. Like, that's it. where we really – just dove right into their culture. That's a good comparison. And like, if you think about it, TNG was the only one that really dived so deeply into a aliens culture down to the point of like, you know, we make jokes about it, about their mating habits and stuff like that. But TNG was the one that set that precedent. And they're with, two dicks. <laughs> two dicks. I mean, that's Canon. That's in Star Trek discovery. And the fact that it had ridges, you know, Hey, wait, we don't know that. <laughs> we're just assuming. I mean, that's a good time. It would make sense why Jadzia and Deanna Troy were Troy all about Worf. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they could never go back. You don't need to have those dick sheets. What, what are those things they make for sex toys? You have like a little dick sleeve that you can put on your penis <laughs> and give you like ridges on they your just, penis. Uh, Klingons don't need that. <laughs> they already got it. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good time right there. Uh, Dave, give me your initial thoughts on this episode in a nutshell before we get into it all. In a nutshell, I was really happy with this episode. This episode caught me really off guard in a very good way because 
it in a ridge type of way. In a ridge type like, of way. Like, oh, that's ridged. Ooh, ooh that's, that's ridged. Ooh, that and it's and it's properly lubricated. Oh, Thank this you. episode was ridged. <laughs> oh wow. wow. It feels so good and satisfying. I'm so filled. <laughs> that's so wrong. But yeah, it's all right. honestly, the 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 episode was very good. It it took the negatives of the past episode and yeah. just erased them. Uh, yeah. It said, hey, this is how the story is being told. Don't worry, we're getting to it, and we're in, we're we're answering those questions. We're getting to the answers, but we're going to flesh out and give you guys proper character development. What? Rather like, than just throwing words at us, I mean, what? Like good golden age television. What? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree, Dave. This was a fantastic episode, and we've got a lot to sort through this week. But first, let's talk some Picard Trek news and get into a recent interview with Jerry Ryan. This interview is actually taken from the Hollywood Reporter, and it's why Star Trek star Jerry Ryan had a tough time returning for Picard. She says the scale of the show, the scale of these sets, the costumes, it's crazy. It's like you're doing a feature film every week, Ryan says with a big smile. What impressed her most was the advances in set design and the tech from her days on Voyager. She says in one of my scenes where I had to go in and work a console, we go in for the first rehearsal and I had to touch buttons and the screen actually does something. I had totally flipped out. I was like, oh, my God, actually having buttons that work. And we've heard those Star Trek stories at conventions time and time again oh, yeah. with all the, the fake things they had to do. They had to pretend they were doing certain things. She says the other thing that was a big change from working on Voyager that surprised her was, and she says, what's funny is that they actually added time to my ready time. Uh, they said they made Seven's prosthetics more complicated to put on, which when you look at the prosthetics from the late 90s, early 2000s, they didn't really need to be completely detailed, detailed because you're dealing with standard deaf television. Now you're dealing with 4K television, 6K television. You can see the pores in your skin. Yeah, so that part actually makes sense. That actually makes perfect sense. These prosthetics are no longer going to be just simplistic designs. They're going to be a lot more complicated. I'm glad she brought that up because, like, it's one of those things that looking back at the first three episodes and now up to this one, especially in, in her first appearance, I started noticing, like, something was different about the Borg technology, how the prosthetics looked. They looked more, more organic at first, more detailed. And I just thought, oh, it's, it's probably my, it's probably because of the, right. probably because of, I haven't seen it in a while yeah. and everything. But the fact that the technology to do prosthetics in Hollywood for this type of series has changed. It really put my mind, it really like, a light bulb went off and said, well, wait, yeah, that makes sense. Because like Voyager was like, what, 10 years ago? Yeah. And the prosthetics back then, I remember everyone went gaga over. But now mm -hmm. you you look at it nowadays, yeah. there's not much detail to it. Yeah, it's right there. And you kind of, you get the idea, the concept that they were going for. Yeah. But now they took took that prosthetic technology and just up the ante because just like we said, the technology for cameras are different now. The visuals are different. You can see down to a person's 
makeup. Makeup has to be excelled beyond what we remember 10 years ago. Yeah. And that goes for almost everything in on a film set nowadays. You know, the days of styrofoam walls and just saying, you yeah, can't it do looks it anymore. great. I mean, you're going to have to make things a little more complicated now because um, if you're doing those standard, you know, set pieces because of high def. Yeah, but let's let's bring it back to this article here talking about Jerry Ryan and her fear of uh, what brought her back to Star Trek. Uh, Number one, it was very daunting for her to come back because of not really quite sure if she can find this character again after 19 years. That's how long it's been since Voyager have has left the air or went off the air. And she said she was Patrick fied. (laughs) That was her words because of, you know, knowing that. Patrick Stewart was going to be working with her and that she has never had the opportunity to be on the same screen with Captain Picard with Patrick Stewart. And she says what really helped her rediscover seven of nine, 19 years after Voyager went off the air was being supported by both Patrick Stewart and Jonathan Franks, because Jonathan Franks was the director of this episode And she had worked with him numerous times, countless times on the set of Voyager because he directed a lot of episodes. Yes, he did. So that was a good experience for her to help her find that character again because she's able to work with a director that she was already very familiar with. She says one of the biggest challenges was where has Seven been for nearly 20 years? Finding her voice was the hardest thing for me when I read the first script. I just couldn't hear her voice anywhere. And then she goes on to recall that it took her the first couple of takes before she felt like she found seven. But once she did, Frank's just sort of walked in and said, there she is. So that was how she got back into it. And I mean, that's saying something. I'm sure Jonathan Frank's feels good as a director, knowing that he was able to assist in bringing out that that performance, that character again. And that's the importance of a relationship between an actor and a director and why you have an actor like Jonathan Franks on this set. Yes. I'm hoping he's going to be directing more episodes. I do too. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the episode. Star Trek Picard episode one for absolute candor. This episode was written by Michael Shaban. And of course, as we had mentioned, directed by the one and only Jonathan Franks, the synopsis, the crew's journey to free cloud takes a detour when Picard orders a stop at the planet Vashti where Picard and Raffi relocated Romulan refugees 14 years earlier. Upon arrival, Picard reunites with Elnor, a young Romulan he befriended during the relocation. Meanwhile, Narek continues his attempts to learn more about Soji, while Nerissa's impatience with his lack of progress grows. Let's start with the Romulan samurai, Dave, because I know <laughs> I know you love it. I loved it. Yep, that was cool, which was without a doubt one of my absolute favorite parts of this week's episode. This new group of woman nun warriors. What is this, David? A 1960s exploitation film? <laughs> nun warriors? Nun warriors. I mean, these are the types of things in some of my favorite samurai and I would definitely say Kung Fu B films. Yeah, this is what it, it really honestly felt like that. It was like a, a harken to it, which I'm glad they did because to me at first, just by the synopsis, you were, I initially thought, oh, they're going to try to copy the whole Klingon thing about totally different, right? 
about yeah about yeah. like warrior races that could be farthest from the truth than anything because in this we got a totally different look at what it means to be a warrior you know you have warrior just like we said warrior nuns that was not expecting yeah. i didn't think about that that picard would need this group to fight the tal shiar because that's how good they are right and they were known as the Qualwat, the qual the Quowat Milot. I'm, I'm glad you t- tried to say I that. I believe that's how that. you say it. And they were an order of, or are an order of Romulan warrior nuns. They were an all-female group, while a male could train in their ways, as we had seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could never truly be one of them. The Quowat Milot were the most feared enemies of the Tal Shiar. That's where it gets interesting. Because now we're getting into that side that we were talking about at the top of the show into Romulan culture in yes. a way that we have never been before. And this isn't retconning. This is expanding on an idea or uh, a, a species of characters that we have seen for dozens and dozens of years within Star Trek canon that we have never really gone into. So none of this is to me is coming out of left field. None of this is like, Oh no way. I can't believe you're doing this to me. It works because we know close to nothing about their culture. Yeah. It's expanding on, it's expanding on an alien race that honestly has always been featured as one of the main villain races. But when you ask Star Trek fans, Hey, can you explain the culture of the Romulans? People summarize it to basically, Oh, they're a very secretive society of people. They uh, yeah. don't let people into their society. And that's about it. That's nothing it. about their religion. Nothing about what makes them their culture isolationist. Nothing about that. Yeah. It's Our, very summarized. Yeah. So the Qualwood Millet, the primary teaching of the Millet was the way of absolute candor. Candor, I should say, i.e. the total communication of emotion without filter between thought and word. Uh, This ran counter to everything that mainstream Romulans held dear. According to Zani, uh, there was a house of truth. So even to the point where they call their home, their place where they reside, a house of truth. I like that aspect. It plays into the samurai culture a bit. It also plays opposite to the Vulcans. Yes. Which and I like, to. I like that quite a bit because as we know, most Trek fans know uh, the Romulans are a cousin race to the Vulcans. Yes. And you have one that is completely uh, who has completely abolished emotion in order to save their society because they were a violent species. And now you have a subsect or group within the Romulan culture that believes in just total communication of emotion. Yes. Without any filters whatsoever. And then they use that very ideology to form a society of warriors. Mm-hmm. A group of what appears to be honorable warriors. Loyal. Very loyal. And this is a, a very unique direction to take the Romulans because, as you had mentioned, where do we go? I mean, I think a lot of people assume, okay, well, Klingons, warriors, which a lot of their belief structure is based on 
various cultures in the real world. Uh, one big one is definitely the the Viking culture. Yeah, it's very Norse based. You know, you have kind of like hell being pictured as a frozen land and you have figures in their religion that are very similar to like characters like Zeus and Thor. Right. The whole returning hero or death, uh, was death before dishonor mm-hmm. type of thing. That's very night Viking. That's very Norse mythology. And then you get to, then you get to this I'm glad you brought up the whole samurai element because the whole binding, the bind, they, they had to bind their sword, meaning they have to swear allegiance with their sword. Well, the exact wording that Picard used, he's like, will you bind your sword to my quest? And I'm like, oh, my God, and I'm that's like, awesome. That was straight from Japanese lore. Yes, it was. That's the master. That's the that's the lone samurai swearing his blade to his master you know that's 47 ronin type type of story yeah mythos well that's exactly what i got from that the character of elnor the way he was set up was really cool i mean what a great way to very quickly introduce a character without one of the best yeah because it didn't require two three four episodes it required about 15 minutes it required, you know, a very quick introduction. Yes. And then we spent a few times throughout the episode focusing on that relationship between Elnor and Picard. And then they take the idea, like you had said, he is essentially a, a Ronin. Yeah, and a people Ronin. don't know what a Ronin is. is essentially a samurai that has no master. And he's almost like that. He's a samurai with no place to belong to belong because he can't belong to the warrior nuns because he's n- number one. He's not male. Right. Or he's not female. I don't like that. You're assuming his gender, <laughs> assuming his gender. He, he should have said that to all of them. <laughs> I don't <laughs> like, I don't like that. You guys are assuming my gender. I, 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 uh, I feel like a woman. I feel like a woman. I'm going to just cut it off. How dare <laughs> you? How dare you just assume that I'm a male? Look at me with my long hair. Doesn't that make me female? <laughs> but like, Honestly, like, and one of the biggest things that really helped it tie it all together was as a Trek fan, when they connected to something that is a core flaw in Picard that we all know, we all know since TNG, one of the things that Picard has always had a problem with is his connection with someone of a younger generation. Like, he can be really kind. He can be really nice. He tells stories. He's really fun to be around for a child, but Picard is not the type of person to connect with a younger person. That was the crux. That was the whole point of the relationship between him and, and will from, from TNG days, you know, will was looking at him as a father's figure or not. Will. um, I forgot. uh, I'm thinking will Wheaton. You're talking about Wesley Crusher, Wesley Crusher. But like with Wesley, Wesley constantly looked at him as a father figure and Picard was like, no, 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 no. I am not, I'm not, I'm not your father, but I will be your mentor because, well, and he's always had that problem with people of younger generation. And then to hearken it back to this episode youth. Yeah. Where it's like, he, he gets along well with this, this kid. And you kind of can see that Picard's looking at him saying, I really wouldn't mind this kid being my adopted son. 
And we all know that's not that 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 is that is a major flaw in Picard because he can't make that type of relationships. Yeah, but that has changed quite a bit. I and mean, yeah, at, it, at the it, very beginning, yes, I would agree. But Picard has come a long way when it comes to that line of thinking because. I mean, first off, and I think his relationship with Elnor is conducive with where we had left Picard, you know, 20 some years ago when the, when we last seen him. Yes. It makes sense when you look at the events that took place in uh, Star Trek Generations, the very first TNG film, when he got news that his brother and nephew burned alive and they died. And he had that entire conversation with Deanna Troy how he had never worried about family or developing relationships that would turn into, you know, a legacy of sorts, because he had always assumed that, that that side of things would be taken care of by his brother. You know, he had spoken about his feelings in that moment about family. He never felt the need to have one, but his sentimentality, I think seems to have seemed to have changed after those events and it works with what we know and where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. So yes, I would agree. That was definitely a big part of his characterization at the beginning, but knowing that we have or seeing this character evolve over time since his introduction, in the very first season of TNG, uh, I love that we have a chance to actually look at this character and see how much he has grown or his, his, his master story arc, as you can, I guess we can call it his, his main arc as a character that extends from the first season of TNG until now, until now, I mean, it, it makes sense. Sure. He's making decisions or maybe even acting out a character of some people may, may, may call it that. But when you look at the evidence, at the evidence, it, it connects so well to his, to who Picard is. Yeah. Without a doubt. Uh, now, this Romulan element, as we had said, this is what we've been missing for so long. Uh, many of the other popular alien races within Star Trek have been explored. Klingon, to no end. Cardassians, Vulcans, Andorians. The list goes on. But as I said, Romulans had been a huge miss opportunity. They had their moments within TNG, even DS9, but due to their secrecy as a people, the less we knew of them worked for that time. Yeah, it did. It worked for that time. But now things are different because of that whole supernova aspect that that took place in the 2009 Star Trek films when that idea was introduced. The veil has been lifted. This is a time in in their history where many of their secrets would surface and the quadrants would learn more of them. It just makes sense. If this is a race or a species that has nowhere to go and they become nomadic in a sense, there really isn't a lot of room for secrets. Where do they hide them? Their culture is out in the open for the most part for whoever is interested in really dissecting and investigating to find it. So the moment of reveals that we're getting about the Romulan culture makes sense at this time period. Now, if this would have happened prior without the supernova effect, it wouldn't have worked as well because we're dealing with a species that went to great lengths since the dawn of their empire, essentially to keep themselves secret. Yeah. I mean, wasn't their introduction in the original series, I believe in the first season 
they were in hiding. Yeah, they were in, they they were a sec- almost like a secret society. Yeah, because and, they had not been seen uh, since the end of the Federation Romulan War, which we never witnessed. We never witnessed, and then like the only the only thing that was explained was like a twist explanation was all of a sudden showing that they were similar to Vulcans, yeah, visually, but they were far different from Vulcans, right? Emotionally and mentally, yes. And uh, that was it. Yeah. All right, so real history, potential inspirations uh, that might have been derived for the Romulan warrior nuns. Uh, There may be people out there who are not aware that women warriors were a thing in both the Chinese culture and the Japanese culture. But let's focus a little bit more on the Japanese side, because I think we can both agree that they're definitely pulling more from the Japanese culture. It feels like it. Yes. Yeah. So one example that they could have used as a source of inspiration. And I may not be pronouncing this correctly. One group was known as the Ona Bogatia. And these were female martial artists. And they were a type of female warrior belonging to the Japanese nobility. These women engaged in battle alongside samurai men, mostly in times of need. They were members of Bushi, which in parentheses, it says samurai. Is that how you say that? Bushi? Yes, Bushi. They were members of the Bushi Bushi class in feudal Japan and were trained in the use of weapons to protect their household, family, and honor in times of war. Uh, significant icons such as Tomei, Gozen, Nakano, Takako, and Hojo Masako are famous examples of Ona Bogesha. So there's an entire history behind women warriors women as assassins within the japanese Mm -hmm. culture so i like again once again star trek pulling from real life mythos mythos which every culture in star trek they do that with oh yeah i mean you've already discussed about how the fact that when it went back in tng they they drew on norse mythology to expand on the Klingons here in Picard, we're seeing them draw again, but this time on a different culture, like Japan, Asia, Asian culture. Cause I think a lot of people, I notice a lot of people misconstrue in Asian cultures that women are subjugated and to some degree they are, but speaking as an Asian, okay. In my culture, Women are treated. Wait, you're Asian? Yeah. <laughs> so stupid. Women are treated as kind of like the leaders of the household. You know, the matriarchs. Matriarch is 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 very important in Asian cultures where the the men are seen as yes, they have the ultimate power outside Publicly. of the house. Yeah. Publicly. Yeah. But inside, in the household, the woman runs the run the the runs the house. They make sure it's safe. They make sure it's the, the children are raised. They make sure that basically food is on the table. They're the ones, they're the lifeblood of the family. Ultimately, I see a lot of people saying that, oh, women are constantly subjugated in Asia. Yes, to some degree. But you also have to understand when you delve deeper into it, women actually have a higher role in Asian society than a lot of people give them credit for. Yeah, well... That's a whole other topic for another time. But yeah, many people from different cultures find it hard to understand 
how other cultures work. work. And when they see something that they don't agree with, they call it one thing without completely understanding how everything works and how the hierarchy and the intricacies of a certain society work. Yeah. All right. So the Romulans hate Picard. We learned about that this week. Oh, man, do they hate him? And it's kind of conducive with how Nero blames Spock and the Federation uh, from the 2009 Star Trek film that spawned the Kelvin timeline. So all of this is working. And this is why I'm thankful that Alex Kurtzman is the man in charge of the Star Trek universe. And I know there's a lot of hate for the man right now because there's a lot of Star Trek babies who just want to blame him for everything. Oh, discovery season one and this and that darkness and doom and gloom. You're destroying Star Trek. Oh, you're a horrible writer, Kurtzman. Well, he's not a writer. Number one, he's a producer and sometimes director, but for the most part, he's a producer. Does he write? Yes, but that's not his main thing. But I think our, we should all thank our lucky stars that he was a protege of JJ that he worked on those Kelvin timeline films with JJ because now we have that consistency. Yes. We have that consistency. Whereas another producer might've said, you know what? I'm not going to retcon things. Cause I know star Trek is all connected and everything works. You know, one thing leads into the next, but I'm just going to ignore certain things. He's not ignoring certain things. He's using things that were set up. You know, even in the Kelvin movies and making them a big part of his series. And and I and I'm glad because that's something that I've always been thankful when it comes to Star Trek in a time where things weren't connected in terms of the bigger universes. You know, like what we have now with the MCU, you know, well, every single Marvel film is connected and everything that happens in one movie, you know, affects the other Star Trek has been doing this for years, for, for years. decades. They've been doing this. So I'm glad that we didn't have a showrunner or I should say an executive producer, the overseeing God of Star Trek come in and say, you know, what? I mean, it doesn't matter. No, it all matters. It all matters. It all works together. It's all connected. And I'm glad you brought up the whole thing about Nero because it's one of those things that a lot of Trekkie fans have made fun about the reboot, how Nero makes that. Very, very angry statement that he will never accept help from someone like him. You know, like when he tells Kirk and points to Spock and says, I would rather watch my world burn a thousand times than accept the help of him yeah. ever again. And it, it, it it's amazing. You, the fact that you mentioned that just now, the light bulb went in my head, went off in my head that basically... The reason why Nero is like that is because the biggest affront that Spock did was he made a promise to Nero. And yeah, if you look into the, look into the background of uh, the countdown or even like even the story of that, Spock promised Nero that he would save his planet. Spock broke his promise. Now, fast forward to this episode where that one... A Romulan uh, senator looks at Picard and says, you promised, you promised to help us. You left. <laughs> yeah. And it connects so perfectly. Uh, yeah. Substantiates, substantiates so much. So yeah. much that basically a lot of tricky fans just threw away as total silliness. But Kurtzman was able to just take that and say, no, no, no. 
We're going to keep that in continuity and we're going to keep that type of, that type of mythos with that race in slide where he broke a promise. And that's a huge affront to, to the Romulan people. Yeah. And, you know, addressing the whole promise aspect, it's something that was a bit of a, a theme for this episode that mm-hmm. promises are prisons. Yes. And that's essentially what happened to many of the Romulans. They believed in Picard's promise, the promise that the Federation would help them. And in a sense, that promise put them into prison and they were unable to help themselves. They yes. relied on a certain group of people and these people did not come through. And now their culture is in or their society is in complete disarray. Yes. Impoverished. Uh, nomadic. So it's, it's quite a statement and I'm hoping they get back into that. Cause that was, I feel like we just barely scraped that aspect politically. So I'm hoping we get back to that. So we're going to take a very quick break. And then when we get back, we're going to continue our discussion, starting with Chris Rios. We'll be right back. Double dumbass on you. Everything. Politic 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Is it the pilot like Pike's motivation? Well, what about Pike? To, because it was never aired it until the It was never 80s. aired. But now that it is, it's answered a lot of questions that a lot of people said was interesting about the menagerie, or Cage in the menagerie, about mm-hmm. like Pike, or and even Vina. The character that basically mm. essentially is the love interest of Pike. She's my love interest, too. Oh my god, dude! When I saw the old, old footage of like all the old Star Trek, I'm like going, "Man, she was hot back then." And well, and then she turns into a haggard hag, and you're like, "Oh god, please, please, turn her back!" Illusion, illusion, <laughs> illusion, back on, illusion, 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 please, illusion, back. <laughs> illusion back! Oh my god! <laughs> Star Trek from the holodeck, exclusively on Rain Man Digital. End simulation. The Rain Man Show. The Rain Man Show. He's apparently a fabric of society so long as they and their weird way of doing sex is, is, is legitimized. That's what they want. Their weird way of having sex or doing sex. I mean, gay folk, they're not aliens. They're not from Trisomia 21. <laughs> they're human beings. They have sex the same way we do. They don't mind meld in order to fuck. <laughs> Now then, they don't, they don't place their fingertips together and they're orgasming. The way these, I mean, Thomas. The, oh, Jesus, uh, he's in the studio. Uh, Thomas, I mean, the way the gays uh, sign those leases for the latest Kia excursion. I mean, it's just, it's madness. The way they do those leases and buy those homes. And, you mean with the signature the same way everyone I mean, else their, does? Their credit ratings are just exuberantly high for, for people. From a lack of divorce. It's, it's true. I mean, they live a better life. They have more disposable income than the rest of us. But good God. They're going to ruin society. If anything, we can learn a little bit about economics and, and the life savings from the gay community. <laughs> For more Rain Man, visit RainManShow.com. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. Boldly go where no man has gone before. All right, welcome back, everybody, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. 
the Star Trek Picard edition. All right, Dave. So let's get into this Chris Rios equation here that I'm loving. (laughs) Completely just in love with this character. You and me both. Chris Rios is an interesting character. And through a bit of dissection of what we were given in this episode, I've come to the conclusion that he is our classic Trek character. He's what happens when a Starfleet officer loses all sense of optimism. That's what they're working with. And we know about optimism and the part that it plays in Star Trek as a whole. Many believe it's the very cornerstone of Star Trek as a whole. It's what keeps everything together. But it seems like Picard as a show, as a series, is challenging the idea of optimism. How do you regain optimism once it's lost? And Rios seems to be that obvious character that they're using as that tool to get into that side of the narrative. Yeah, the psychological side. Yes, and Shaban is a genius, and I'll tell you why. If he's doing with this character what I hope and think he's doing, it's going to be great. Some Trek fans might say he's far too dark. And I'm talking about Chris Rios. He's <laughs> far too dark and and a bit self-deprecating. You know, do we really need a character like this in Star Trek? I've read things already on social media about it. Like people are not saying he's not good. Everyone agrees the guy's great. But there are that little bit of Star Trek fans who just want everything to be rainbows and unicorns. And you know what? I agree with them that he's a little dark and self deprecating. It's supposed to be that way. They would be right, but it's to serve a point. It's there to serve a point Mm -hmm. in most Star Trek series. We have those characters that are essentially that, that essentially double as literary devices designed to pose questions about humanity, explore philosophical questions about life, and so on and so on. Uh, the original series, you had Spock. In the next generation, it was Data. Yeah. In DS9, it was Odo. and Voyager, it was Seven of Nine. and Enterprise, it was T'Pol. Shabon is using Rios for something similar. Firstly, Dave, and bear with me here, what do we know about Rios? We know that he's witnessed something tragic, something that caused him to lose faith. Does he have PTSD? Possibly. Does he hate himself? Possibly. Why else does every hologram in his ship look like him and he hates them all? (laughs) Now look at the book he's reading. Tragic Sense of Life. This is a real book. Yes, it is. A book that I have unfortunately not read, but is now on order from Amazon as of last week. So what's this book about? The Tragic Sense of Life is a book of philosophical reflection, which considers the nature and transience of humanity, the trials physical societal and emotional of existence together with death and the afterlife that is fucking deep oh it is it is because 
I can fully say that, yes, I have read this book back in my college days, and it is a very deep book. It's a very heavy read. <laughs> what does he say? Uh, it's about the human or it's about the one who's conscious of death. Yes. I mean, it's dark. So when you look at Rios and what they're doing with him, it's he's not just some rando character who's doom and gloom for no reason. I'm thinking he's a character that is doubling as that literary tool that we get so many times in Star Trek, that classic archetype, the Datas, the Spocks, the Odos. He is going to be a way. And these other characters, these literary tool type characters, they are ways to dissect the surroundings we find ourselves in. And with Rios, we need to understand our surroundings, the culture, the current societal trials from a more cerebral perspective. The fact that he he is such an introspective character clues us into these possibilities. He seems to be very keen on the examination of his own conscious thoughts and feelings. But to what end? What end? From a yeah. narrative standpoint, we shall see. But as a literary device, it's fairly clear. He creates a mood, a mood of self-examination. And I think that could be the very theme of this show. Yeah. Look at Picard, Raffi, and Elnor. And as we pick up more characters along the way, I'm assuming we will have a ship full of lost souls trying to find out who they are, who they are, what makes the, what makes humanity great. And in the end, yes, what makes humanity great. And in the end, they will find the optimism they lost. They'll find the, the what the principles of what made the Federation. Yeah. You see, the, 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 and that's why I like, well, one of the things I've been reading about Rios is like, everyone's like, oh, he's so pessimistic. He's so everything i'm not going no you don't understand he's being very introspective he's the smartest character in this show he's and i'm not i'm not talking about his yes. own character's intelligence i'm talking about the way shaban has written this character yeah he and it's is being subtle yeah he it's it's eh, some 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 of it isn't too subtle but i also some of think it's not that too subtle but like like the way that basically his i think like what you're like what you said his story arc i think it's being told very kind of subtly trying to answer the question of what makes humanity great. And like, though I agree with you though. The whole point of captain Rios is at the very end, he, he has to have this epiphany moment where he gains that optimism, that, that, that positivity again in his life to bring everything together. Yes. He's learned to be pessimistic you could say, or very sarcastic with his life, but there's something that makes him keep going. That's what is going to happen in the end is like, what is the thing that makes him keep going? Because the biggest question we have is if this character is here just hating himself, self -dep uh, deprivating himself. Yeah, but it's not just about him, and that's that's yeah. why he's such a good character. Is because it's not just about him. It's not just about him. I think, as you said, you said it's it's subtle, and yeah, I think the the motives behind the character are subtle. The actual character himself is not subtle, but what they're yes. doing with him, the purpose of that character, and what he does for the show, and for the other characters, and for our more unconscious viewing 
of the show. Cause obviously when we watch a show, there's always the conscious aspect that we, that we understand like, Oh, he just said we are going to this planet and he doesn't like you. I'm just doing basics. Like that's our conscious viewing. We take what they <laughs> yes. say and we like, Oh, they're going to get on a ship and they're going to find Soji. But then there's the subconscious that we don't really know we're, we're ingesting. And when you're a good writer of a TV show, you write for that side of your brain as well. The stuff that's more subconscious, the subtext, if you will. And that's what this character is about. It's about fleshing out an idea. It's mood setting in many ways to help us understand not just Rios, but many of our other players. I mean, I would say Rios and Picard in many ways are going through the exact same thing. They're both struggling with tragedy. I'm sure that Rios hates himself, but Picard also, I mean, he is struggling with the decisions he's made and he may not like the man he sees in the mirror. Yes. And I think that's pretty clear. If you really dissect what we have seen over the last three episodes, he's a man trying to correct a wrong. He's not happy with the man he is looking at in the mirror every morning. That's why he decided to take a stand. He just needed that motivation with Data's daughter to remember the death of his best friend is what motivated him. And it reminded him of what it means to be not just Starfleet, but be, to but to be alive. So this character, Rios, is is just completely genius how he's being written. And I'm hoping Shaban continues with this character the way he has done so far. I, th- I honestly feel that this character is hopefully by the, I, I think by the end of this series, this character will be held on a pedestal for Star Trek fans, like how Robert Picardo's uh, doctor is viewed. I how agree. Yeah. Brett Spiner's data is. Viewed. I wouldn't doubt it because like, this character is going to be tackling an issue that we all as Star Trek fans love when it's tackled in Star Trek, the questioning of one's humanity. What makes, what, why do we do the the things we do? Yeah. (laughs) You know, what is the motivation of making things great or or understanding? Let's make it more nuanced. Maybe it's not about humanity. Uh, Let's make it more nuanced. What does it mean to be me at this moment? Yeah. That's what I think it's more about more than anything. All right, so let's jump into the Borg Cube side of things. We get a bit more on Soji and Narek this episode. Soji continues to investigate Ramada, Ramda and their potential connection, which we had not really... Uh, I, I don't think we've come, we came to that conclusion last week that they're actually connected. Yes, we knew that Ramda knew who she was, but in this episode, it seems like they made it a point to show that it's not, it's not as simple as, hey, she knows me. There's a connection, right? Is that what you got as well? There's yeah. a connection between the two of them, especially if you look at the uh, the non-subtleties of some of the imagery, how they had her holographic face and they shot the camera behind the scene so you could see that her holographic image was imposed, superimposed essentially on Soji's face. And then yeah. they start talking about them being connected. I'm like, all right, what's going on here? Yeah. So there's going to be a lot deeper. There's going to be a, a deeper connection between the two of them. I, maybe not just her Ramda, but maybe those groups of Romulans that were assimilated. There's going to be a deep connection there that I don't think any of us will see coming. The, the, 
The cinematography during the Borg elements is one of my favorite moments now after watching it unfold in like four episodes up to this point because there's strange storytelling that the cinematographer is choosing to do that to the untrained eye, it you don't see it. But to like people like me and you who who know that craft, suddenly we're starting to see stuck connections like that. Like like, like what the superimposing of yeah. the, the 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 faces like they're supposed to be similar because we're gonna choose this shot because this is the this is the I don't want to say the story that we're trying to tell, but this is the idea that we're trying to tell. This is the so. What do you think? What do you think is gonna happen between Ramda and Soji? Do you have any theories? My my only theory that I have right now is I honestly think that we're looking at the Soji character too one-dimensional right now, meaning that we're just saying she's Data's daughter, right? I honestly think that there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just Data being part of her well we talked about that last week yeah yeah part of part of her creation mm-hmm. suddenly there seems to be a connection to her and the romulans especially with the connection of the one scientist who we haven't even seen yet the the one scientist that picard is is trying to find i forgot what the, his name bruce was. maddox bruce maddox yeah there's something about bruce maddox that bruce maddox and the romulans pay, play a heavier role in the twins than we think we think it's all data i honestly think yeah there's a little bit of data in there because bruce maddox was influenced by data but i think this romulan element and the bruce maddox element is what really makes the twins up yeah well there's definitely a conspiracy going on because we find out that Narek isn't really fully aware of what's happening we had assumed that he was in the know and it seems like he's just a tall Shiar agent going through the motions doing something his, more though well he's him. doing his job but he doesn't really know all of the the answers either because as we had seen at the end of the episode he asked his sister you know what's going on what's her connection with with the romulans and and the ramda or the Bo- um with the ramda and the other and the other simulated Romulans and she didn't answer him so he doesn't even know what's going on really yeah and I'm hoping that wasn't designed just because he's gonna end up falling for her I feel like we kind of like that's kind of expected I'm hoping he sticks to the plan and he betrays Soji because I I, do we really want to see this Romulan agent fall in love with an android because we do know that he may have some it seems like Narek, his story is veering away from his sister. His sister is the one who's deeply involved, it seems like, with the conspiracy, with the Tal Shiar and the, the Vosh, whatever they were, the secret, the super secret Tal Shiar. Tal Shiar. And it seems like he's more about the android side of things because she had mentioned that our goal is to kill them all. Yes. And to find them all. Them all. So, I mean, I guess we're led to believe that there's more than just Soji and Dodge. There's got to be an entire race, air quotes here, of these droids. Droids, yes. Is that what you got as well from it? That's what I got. Is that I think for me, that was the big, 
one of the big twists in this episode in regards to that storyline right now, because I do think you're right. You're on me and you are on the same wavelength of, uh, of that is like, we do, you get the sense that there's more of the twins now because the, of what she said, or there's other, maybe the twins are just, they're, more, they're unique and they're just them, but there's other versions, other versions of droids, of, of androids, yes. of AI that were all built off of data's, you know, positronic mind. Yeah. And it just so happens that these two are unique in within that species or within that created culture, I guess. Yeah. I, I think that's the direction we're going. And I, I do hope that you're right, that Narek's story isn't just leading up to him falling in love with an android. You know, it it just seems too yeah one dimensional for that. I honestly think think Narek's story, while I know it's not very popular with a lot of Star Trek friends right now, with, in regards to Picard, I honestly feel it's one of the most intriguing because I want to see how deep into the rabbit hole he goes. Because the further he goes along, yeah, you're getting those elements that he's getting attached to Soji emotionally but there's more going on around him okay that well that, that he seems that his sister knows well i more think than him i think there's a few clues okay to the bigger picture of everything and what's happening when they said we're gonna find them all and kill them all um we gotta remember what's the now this may be this this is an actual easter egg if it pans out do you remember what the doctor was reading at picard's home Oh, my God. The Isaac Asimov's book. Asimov's. Asimov book. Short story collection, right? Yeah, with iRobot. Right. Now, you go back to a book he wrote, which was iRobot. Yes. Okay, and we already know what iRobot's about. And if you don't, look it up. I'm not going to get into it. But essentially, it's about highly intelligent robots becoming essentially what? Self-aware? Sentient. Sentient. Or sentient. Yeah. So there's our first Easter egg that may end up paying off. And I didn't really think nothing of it. I thought it was just a fun, nice little nudge to sci-fi, you know, a nice little tribute to sci-fi when we saw, you know, Asimov's book being read. But now after that statement that between the two Romulans about finding them all, are we dealing with a new species that were built from data and maybe even data before his death had a hand in their creation that this is his legacy that he's leaving behind a new species that are like him. I'll one up you on that. I mean, if you think about it, discovery season two, the whole storyline of control, an AI that gains sentience and tries to kill every living, living thing. Yeah, but why? But how is that connected? If they're after a species or a brand new species of AI that has gained sentient, sentienceness, that ties into so many things more than just data and his whole storyline. It ties into data it ties into the borg it ties into it could tie into control and it could you bring everything together all these elements of the ai that has happened throughout star trek lore and you weave them all together and suddenly bang a whole new this is how a whole new species 
is made in Star Trek. Yeah, and I, I they are playing with the whole like doom and gloom of Soji being like the destroyer. Yeah. I mean, that can feed into the theory of it being connected to control in some way, but we're also dealing with data's legacy. And data's if he was legacy. involved with it, I don't see it becoming a bad thing, especially if we're dealing with a species of droids that are, that want to survive. They want to live. They don't want to be banned. They don't want to be treated like subhuman, especially when you're dealing with a new species that is sentient, that is just as aware as a human being. And then we get into those philosophical questions of, Hey, what does being alive mean? It's the mm-hmm. very question that Data as a character posed within the run of TNG. Yeah. So if you hearken all the way back to many of the developments of Data throughout the years and you make that a core aspect of this show, I, I can't complain. That's, no, I can't that complain. is pretty cool. And then if we do have that connection to iRobot as a source of inspiration – Hey, we're we're going places with we're this show, places. and that's why, as I said, man, this 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 element within Picard, this storyline that they're telling, is one of my favorites. That's been going on. It's secretly becoming one of my favorite times in the episode that we jumped to. That I really, I'm really sitting on the edge of my seat, seeing where are they going with this, and that's why I like I like the character of Narek. I'm obviously in the minority with a lot of people. That's why the the, the story of Narek going going down into this rabbit hole has me really intrigued. Yeah, where, where it leads. Yeah, it's definitely interesting, and that's why I love this episode so much more because I feel like this episode. Let me just go into my final thoughts. This episode managed to fix some of the overcomplicated, convoluted meandering that we had got in episode two and episode three because of a few choice words and a few reveals and a well-paced episode, we managed to make sense of the lot of a lot of those words and those setups that were just being thrown at you with not a lot of context. Yes. And people may say, well, you got to be patient, Mike, and it makes sense. I'm like, no, that doesn't forgive, you know, a rushed episode. I almost feel like, they were aware that those episodes were a little clunky and this episode here was designed very differently with a more veteran, with a veteran director that was able to take Shabon's words and elements from the previous episode and really make them work to better the overall narrative. And I'm hoping moving forward, we just get more of what we got in episode four. So I'm going to give this episode a 90. That's actually, yeah. And I think that's one of your highest scores you've given so far to. Oh, yeah, for sure. Episodes, to the prior episodes of Picard. I mean, like, I can't, I agree with you 100% with what they've done with this episode. I mean, if you break down every piece of this episode, you have to actually say the directing, top notch, A+. plus. The character growth in a lot of the actors, top notch, one of the best. I mean, Chris the Ball has turned into one of our fan favorites. The story arc of Picard is still going strong. The introduction of Eleanor was actually El- Elnor 
was actually very well done. Probably one of the best introductions to a new character that I've seen since the beginning. Seven and nine looking super hot. You have seven and nine show up and, uh, you know, just that for that brief moment, you're suddenly geared and, uh, you know, stuck on her. And basically now you want to know what the hell has seven and nine been up to this whole time? Why yeah. does she say that to Picard? And the whole story arc and questioning of what makes the Federation great too is continuing on watching what happens with Picard and how people view him now through the lens of a broken promise. That's what he did. And now you take a look at how people view the Federation during that time where they made a lot of promises and they didn't protect anybody. So it makes sense. We're in a different time in Star Trek and they continued that on a plus. Yeah. So I'm with you. I think that, the score that for me is a 91. This is honestly the, the best episode we've gotten. Why do you got to one up me, Dave? Because I have to average everything. Well, I'm going to change mine to 91.5. 91.5. What is this, a radio station? <laughs> 91.5 slow jams. Jerry Ryan on my crotch. Oh, is Jesus. At least use her character name. Let's not be so offensive. Okay, seven this nine. is 2020, Dave. Get with the times. <laughs> seven and nine on my crotch. That's much better. <laughs> All right, Dave. Um, yeah, 91 and 90%. Hey, I like I like it. This is one of the best episodes. Yeah. I, it, it really made me excited for what's coming up now. Yeah, and I just got to say, I love uh, the use of Mexican slang or Spanish slang. <laughs> I figured I mean, that would make you giggle. I mean, we've gotten F-bombs now in Star Trek, and now we're getting Mexican versions of that because, first of all, I'm pretty sure said chingado. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. They, it wasn't in the, um, the closed captioning. They didn't say it, uh, but why would they? And I'm also pretty sure he used another word, uh, way. I believe he called his hologram, the actual character Rios called the hologram, the navigational hologram, a way, which is also a, uh, some people say it's just a casual way of talking, but in a lot of, of the different Mexican cultures, they believe that it's an insult. <laughs> so, chingado way. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I like having a Mexican. Oh, he's not really Mexican. He's a uh, Venezuelan, but it's all the same. You guys all are all the same. same. Yeah, so we're all the same. Just like yeah. you Asians are all the same, right? Yeah, exactly. We're just, you know, diff. Well, no, no, we're all the same. That's so racist. <laughs> all right. I want to thank everybody for listening to our discussion on Star Trek Picard, episode four, season one. If you want to get more Star Trek from the holodeck, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and, of course, Google Play. Just search Star Trek from the holodeck, leave us reviews, share the shows. The more you share, the more you like, the more reviews you leave, the more we become relevant on the feeds. You start triggering those algorithms and more people can find our show. Also, get more Star Trek from the holodeck via our Patreon page. We do a plethora of additional shows for our Patreon subscribers exclusively. So head over to patreon.com slash Digital and pledge $5 or more a month and gain access to hundreds of hours of additional Star Trek discussions. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.